Words of hope. What do you think of when you think of words of hope? Uh, do, do phrases like this come to mind? You passed the test. Oh, those are words of hope. Or the surgery went well. You're, you're going to be okay. Oh, those are words of hope. Or you are number one on our list after we interviewed everybody else for the position. Those are words of hope. We love words of hope that give us encouragement. One of my favorite stories is about three older ladies in a retirement community who were still hoping to meet the man of their dreams, the love of their lives. And one day, a distinguished-looking gentleman entered their dining hall, and of course, they noticed that immediately, and nonchalantly, they approached him and welcomed him to the new community of his. And then the questions began. Where are you from? Kansas. Oh, where in Kansas? Leavenworth. Oh, nice community. What did you do there? He paused. I was incarcerated. Oh, I see. What was your crime? Murder. Oh, who did you murder? My wife. <laughs> oh, so you're single. <clears throat> Hope springs eternal, doesn't it? <laughs> but, but this morning, I'd like us to take a little bit different look at the aspect of words of hope. I want to come at it from a little bit different perspective. The parable of the prodigal son is the story of unquenchable hope, a hope that is indispensable to our lives, a hope that comes from being loved and forgiven by God. But if I ask this morning for you to give me the words of hope in this parable, you might tell me something different than I'm going to tell you. I suspect you would go to verse 24 and, and suggest that these are the words of hope. When the Father says, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. Those are words of hope. Well, certainly they're joyful words, they're exciting words, they're thrilling words, but contrary to popular belief, hope and joy are not synonymous. In the story, the words of hope, I believe, come three verses earlier, verse 21, and they read like this. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And I know some of you are thinking, those aren't words of hope. Well, if by hopeful you mean words that depict excitement or pleasure or delight, then you're correct. Those aren't hopeful words. But I think hope is a lot deeper than that simple look. If we understand that hope begins with an honest evaluation of who we are and what we've done and that we desperately need a Savior to put us on the right track, then we're beginning to get at the heartbeat of hope. Hope grows out of a sincere willingness to change when that change improves our current circumstances as well as our future circumstances. And with that in mind, then verse 21 does become the pivotal words of hope. They are words of acknowledgement and admission. Now, let's work backwards a little bit in the story for a moment, all right? What is the best part of the story of the prodigal son? 
Well, that's easy. The best part is where the son comes home and there is this fabulous reunion between the father and son and there's this warm embrace and the father forgives him and welcomes him back into the family. The son came home expecting conditional justice but received unconditional love and grace. If it had been a story of conditional justice, it would have been a lousy parable. But because it is a story of unconditional love and grace, it becomes one of the all-time favorites. And whereas in the beginning of the story, all of the focus is on the young son, the focus suddenly shifts, and now the picture is on the father. Have you ever gone through the parable and, and, and figured out everything the father did when the boy came home? Let, let me take you through this. The first thing that you need to see here is that the father saw him coming. He was watching every day, hoping against hope that his son might return, watching and waiting, waiting and watching. And you say, well, why didn't the father go after him? Ah, because the father was wiser than that. The father knows that he cannot force the son to come home. Until the son wants to come home, any attempts at reconciliation by the father will be seen as meddlesome and thus rejected and maybe put a bigger wedge between them. You also need to realize who the father in the parable represents. It represents our heavenly Father. And while the Lord has done everything in His awesome power to save us, God waits and watches until we recognize our need to be saved. Anything more that God would do would drive us farther away. Now, folks, i got to tell you, I cling to this picture of the heavenly Father watching for us to come home. See Him standing at the end of the lane, craning His neck to look down the road to see if there's any movement on its way up the hill listening carefully to any sound that might suggest straining his ear with hopefulness that somebody will be walking up the road. He never tires of waiting and watching and watching and waiting. What a glorious image of our Heavenly Father and His love for us. I take great hope from this passage written by Peter in his second letter. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Not, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. He is waiting and watching. What a beautiful picture. Second thing the Father does is He runs to meet Him. I also cling to this picture. When the Lord finally sees us dragging our sin-weary souls up the road, He doesn't stand with His arms crossed and His brow furrowed just waiting for us to reach Him. No, no. He picks up the hem of His robe and joyfully runs to greet us. In the Middle East of that day, as I have told you, running for a father under such circumstances was undignified. If the son wanted to run to the father, that was well and good. A son could run to the father. But the father running to the son, that would just never happen. But in the parable, folks, it's just the opposite. The son doesn't run, but the father does. God our Father does not stand on etiquette. He dashes down the road because he cannot wait to embrace us and welcome us home. 
overwhelming, isn't it? This is just overwhelming to me. The God who spoke the universe into being, who spun every galaxy into place, who knows every star by name, runs to welcome us home. That alone was more than the boy had anticipated. That alone would have been more than extraordinary kindness given everything that he had done. But that's not all the father does. The father then calls for the best robe. It might have been the father's robe. It might have been the robe that was reserved for guests in the house. It might have been the son's old robe, pressed and cleaned and hung up just waiting for the day that he might come home. Doesn't matter which picture you pick, it's the same picture. It's a gracious effort over the tattered clothes and bony shoulders. He places this beautiful robe. You're where you need to be, it says. You're okay, it says. Your home at last. And then the father puts a ring on his finger. A signet ring was a sign of authority. This young man was no hireling. This was no hired hand. He was the boss's son. When we come home, God doesn't view us as an outcast. He views us as family. Hey, folks, you know this already. I dearly love being a grandfather, but can I tell you this? God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. Every person that comes home is his child. That ring said, I'm a child of the king. I have his authority. And then he put sandals on his feet. The father looked at the bare feet, which was a sign of slavery, and placed sandals there to declare that he was free. He would no longer be a slave ever again. He was free. And then the father killed the fattened calf. You've got you to understand this. Killing a calf was a big deal. I mean, this wasn't just for a family picnic. There's no family that could consume that much meat in one party. No, no. This was for the whole community. Now, you'd think, wouldn't you, that a father who had been so mistreated by his younger son, whose son had wasted his inheritance, you'd think that that father would want to kind of quietly bring him in and say, here, get in the house quick, and we'll just... We'll just meld you into society slowly and easily until people just kind of, oh, wake up one of these days and you're you're kind of back. No, no. This father wanted the whole community to know that his boy was alive and well and home again. This was a time to celebrate. I've told you before about one of our evenings when Brad and I were in India a few years back. We were invited to uh, visit a Hindu monastery. And as we sat there with our uh, host, uh, Ajay Lal, and, and people from the mission, these young men who were probably somewhere between the ages of 12 and 15, they lived at the monastery. They were being uh, prepared uh, by the guru there uh, to serve in, in ministry. And they came out, and they recited for us, and they chanted for us, and they sang for us. And I couldn't understand any of it. It was all done in Hindi, but I knew they were just simply going through what they believed and, and their mantras. And I noticed, I noticed that their eyes appeared hollow. Their, their voices held no enthusiasm. There was no change of expression. There was nothing coming out of their lips that seemed to suggest, this is exciting for me. This is hopeful for me. And so when they finished with their chanting, the guru turned to me. Now, I'm not exactly sure why he picked me out of that group, but he did. He, he looked at me and said, and what is it that you believe? And so I turned to Ajay 
And I said, what do I, what can I say in a house of Hindu worship? And, and he said, you, you just tell them what you believe. And so I told them the story of the prodigal son. And I explained to them that the God I serve, my heavenly Father, is a God of grace and offers forgiveness to those who will find their way home in Christ. I said, he is a God who runs to meet us and welcome us home. Now, I hope the Lord will forgive me for editing the story just a bit in those circumstances. I left out the part about killing the fatted calf simply because I did not want to start a riot in India. (laughs) But the faces of those young men squandering their spiritual inheritance in that faraway country of idolatry are etched in my memory forever. I pray that they will eventually hear more of God's Word, that they, like the prodigal, will come to their senses that they, like the prodigal, will find their way home. And when that day comes, the Heavenly Father will run to meet them, embrace them with a robe, a ring, and sandals. All of this points to the incredible, extraordinary grace of God. But notice, notice, folks, notice now what prompted such an outpouring of merciful kindness. None of the part of the story that we love the most would have happened had the young man not come to his senses, admitted his sin, and acknowledged his need for forgiveness from the Father. It's one thing to think about it. It's another thing to admit it openly and to say, I have sinned, Father. I need your forgiveness. I believe that God is poised on the edge of eternity, watching and waiting to hear those words of hope from us. Father, I have sinned, and I want to come home. One part of an admission is our guilt. The other part is an admission of our inadequacy. In other words, I have a problem. It's called sin. I need a solution. It's called forgiveness. And only God can handle both parts of the problem. And thus begins our wonderful homecoming. Now, now let's take a look at the guilt side first for just a moment. We don't like feeling guilty. At least, at least I don't like feeling guilty. When I do something wrong, guilt just kind of overwhelms and you squirm. And, you, and, and guilt turns you every which way but loose until you do something about it. I mean, it is just annoying. <clears throat> to be honest with you, I don't like physical pain either. But pain is vital to our health. Pain is an indication that something is wrong in our bodies. Consequently, we need medical help to figure out what the problem is, not just to get rid of the pain, but to get rid of the source of the pain. What pain is to the body, guilt is to the soul. Guilt indicates that something is wrong in our life. Consequently, we need help to solve the problem that is causing the guilt. Not the guilt itself, but to get rid of the source of the guilt, which is our sin. And so we try all kinds of things to ease our guilt. Sometimes we just pretend it's not there. We just try to ignore it and pretend that we don't have any sin. Are are you familiar? You remember the, the, the character in the Peanuts comic strip called Pigpen? You know, everywhere Pigpen went was this cloud of dust that was just around. He seemed to be oblivious to it, but that didn't get rid of the dust. Everybody else could see the dust as it moved. Now, I'm here to tell you that, that guilt is like that cloud of dust. You could ignore it, but that doesn't make it go away. It just makes it hang around you all the more and make you miserable. Sometimes we try to rectify our guilt. We try to, we try to solve the problem on our own. 
Did you hear about the man who sent a check to the government for back taxes? He attached this note. He said, I felt so guilty for cheating on my taxes, I had to send you this check. If I don't feel any better, I will send you the rest. <laughs> now, now, please hear me say this. If you can right a wrong, then for goodness sakes, right a wrong. If you can do something to take something that was bad and make it good again, do that. But don't do it to get rid of your guilt. Do it because it's the right thing to do. And then and, and sometimes we try to get rid of it at the last moment of our lives as if to somehow purge our conscience before we stand before God. James Washington had been a suspect uh, in a 1995 murder of Joyce Goodner, but there was insufficient evidence to actually charge him. Fourteen years later, in 2009, Washington had a heart attack, and he thought he was going to die. So as he lay in the hospital bed, he confessed to the murder to ease his conscience before death. What he had hoped was he could die with a sense of peace. What he got was a, a medical miracle, and he survived the heart attack. <laughs> now he's in prison for, for murder. You see, just, just trying to clear your conscience doesn't solve the problem. Only God can deal with with the guilt of the past. You see, guilt can make us impatient, rude, indignant, and angry with other people. Guilt for past mistakes can distort our perspective and future decisions, cause parents to overcompensate by indulging their child's every whim. Guilt can keep us from genuine commitment in our current relationships. Guilt will keep us living in the past, and those who live in the past cannot enjoy today or see tomorrow. Guilt cannot change the past, no more than worry can change the future, but both of them can make today miserable. Guilt can even make you physically sick. When you keep swallowing your guilt, your stomach keeps score. Psychiatrists suggest that a great number of people in the hospital today could leave immediately if they could find a way to deal with their guilt and resolve it. There is only one way. Admit your sin and guilt to God. Only He can take it and bury it in the depths of the sea. If you do not have this verse committed to memory or have it marked in your Bible or know where to find it, I want you to do it today. Oh, such great words of hope in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. We read this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, what we miss in our English translations, we, we, we ought not to miss. In the tense of the original language, this should read more like this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and continually Purify us from all unrighteousness. It's an ongoing relationship. Had the prodigal not admitted his sin and guilt, there would have been no parable to love and celebrate. But there's a second part to the equation, and it is this. We don't just need to admit our sin and guilt. We also need to admit our need for a Savior. Look at Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. 
The prodigal returned admitting his sin and his need for his father's grace and mercy. As a result, he was warmly welcomed with open arms. (laughs) But not everybody was so excited about his homecoming. The older brother who had been out working in the back 40, when he came in, heard music and celebration, and he could smell the food, and he, and he asked one of the hired hands, he said, what's going on? He says, oh, your, your younger brother has come home, and they are celebrating. And when the older brother learned that his good-for-nothing younger brother had come back, he was so angry and indignant that he refused to even go into the house. The kindly father left the party came out to see his older son, pleaded with him to join the celebration. But the normally mild-mannered, obedient, desperate-to-please firstborn exploded in anger. Look, Dad, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me so much as a young goat to celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours didn't even call him my brother, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, ah, you kill the fattened calf for him. I think had we been sitting in the first crowd when Jesus gave this parable, we probably would have responded at this moment with these words. Yes, finally a voice of reason. Somebody's got to bring justice to this situation. But I remind you folks, we don't want justice, remember? Justice means we get what we deserve, and since all of us have sinned, that's not the end result we want. We don't want justice, we want grace, which is what makes this story so incredible. Now, the father who loved his firstborn son equally reached out to the older son who was also lost. Here's the point we forget. He too was lost. He was lost to the joy that comes through grace. He was lost to the gratitude of everything he'd taken for granted. He was lost to his own sin and desperate need for salvation. You see, just because he was a good boy staying at home doesn't mean he was perfect. He too was a sinner. His problem was, his problem was he thought he was good enough. The father tenderly reminded him that everything in this state was as good as his already. But we have to celebrate because your brother who is dead is alive again, who was lost is found. But the older brother would have nothing of it because he was good enough. At one point or another, we are all prodigals, and we have all played the part of the older brother at other points. I have been to the faraway lands of wasted living. I have slopped the hogs in the muck and mire of sin more than once, and you have too. But despite our despicable past, God has graciously welcomed us home. We return to Him in our tattered, foul rags, and He gives us His righteous white robe to cover our guilt. It is a wonderful moment of grace when he runs to welcome us home. Not because we deserve it, but because grace is the Father's nature. But like the elder son, I have also been lost in my own efforts to be good enough. But I'm here to remind you this morning, being good enough is not good enough. All of us have sinned, and all of us need the salvation that comes only through a Savior, and that is the miracle of grace. I don't care how good or bad you are this morning, you still are a sinner in need of God's grace and salvation through Jesus Christ. In December of 1950, American forces 
on the peninsula of Korea were cut off by the advancing communist troops, found themselves stranded in the port of Hungnam on the northeast coast of, uh, of the peninsula. The city was also filled with thousands of Korean refugees who were trying to escape to the south. And so the U.S. Navy tried uh, a, a huge rescue effort. Uh, 200 ships went into that harbor, but the sheer number of people was absolutely overwhelming. One of the last ships to enter the harbor to help with the rescue was a merchant marine ship by the name of Meredith Victory. Um, it was designed to carry a crew of 47 and no more than 300 passengers on it. Besides that, this ship was loaded uh, with several hundred uh, thousand tons of uh, aircraft fuel, and it could not jettison that jet fuel in, in any way. It was stuck on the ship, but they went into the harbor anyway. And uh, Captain LaRue committed to take as many refugees as possible, being one of the last ships there. All through the snowy night, the Korean families crossed a makeshift bridge onto the vessel, and when the Meredith Victory weighed anchor at dawn the next morning, on board were 14,000 men, women, and children. Two days after the improbable journey had begun, in the face of incredible odds, the captain and his crew delivered their precious human cargo on Christmas morning, 1950. It took five hours to unload all of the people, but amazingly, not one person was lost or injured as all 14,000 plus five babies that had been born in those two days left the ship. The U.S. Maritime Association called the feat, quote, the greatest rescue operation by a single ship in human history. However, I'm here to tell you this morning that the greatest rescue operation ever by a single person in human history was accomplished by Jesus Christ when he paid the debt of our guilt and made it possible for us to find our way home. Those are words of hope. I loved Katie's video testimony. Her enthusiasm, her excitement, her joy. But the words of hope came early when she was talking about all the things that she had done and where she had been and what she finally decided she needed. The joy came over here in the baptistry in that moment. But the hope came when she said, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. 